The objective of tonight's talk and discussion is to try to expand the idea of Amuna of Jewish faith and to understand also why it needs to be expanded. I have previously brought copious evidence that according to the Torah's definition of Amuna of faith, it's actually supremely exhaustive. It's more than just a belief, an idea that we have in our cognitive intellectual realm. It's something that has to penetrate our behavior, our heart, our interactions with the world, our interaction with other people, our purview, our perspective of the world, our Weltanschauung, all of that has to be influenced by faith. Last time, we spent uh, the effort more of a preliminary uh, stage because I think most people, when they talk about faith, they mean something that's very similar to an emotional response. It's not one that's built upon logic. And even a rudimentary faith has to have within it a reason why you believe. If someone just believes because their parents told them to believe, then their parents can tell them really anything. Like How valuable is that? It may be very uh, visceral internally, but it's very much subject to being upended by life's circumstances. And that's very dangerous. Like We don't want to have the most important aspects of our religious life, our faith, to be fickle and to be subject to being disrupted because of circumstances. And therefore, we spoke about last time, we'll continue this today, it's imperative for us to blaze our own path in emuna, in faith, to determine for ourselves, based upon our own processes, why we believe in God intellectually. And once we have that, we could try to internalize that, have that idea penetrate into our hearts. We have the tefillin, is symbolic of this transformation, which is the objective of all mitzvot, is to take what we know in our head and bring it to our heart. That's what tefillin represents, amongst other things, of course. But to begin with, we have to first get something in our head. Because if someone just has an indoctrinated faith from their parents, a cultural faith from the community, or an emotional faith based upon some sort of emotion, it's very likely that that may become challenged and that will become weakened, and maybe even, God forbid, will be lost due to circumstances. The Mishnah tells us, You have to know how to respond to a heretic. Now, importantly, it doesn't say you, you should respond to a heretic. It means that your faith internally should be, should be able to withstand, even if you were to engage in debate, in polemics with a heretic, you should have the responses. So it's for yourself. It's not... For the other person, sometimes someone is not willing to be convinced of your argument no matter what you say, and therefore arguing with them is futile. But for yourself to know that you have achieved whatever your degree of faith is, you have acquired it on your own via some sort of cognitive method that you could, could support and argue with successfully to a heretic, that's necessary for your own level of faith on your own. So last week we started to, to outline the four different arenas of life through which we can come on our own to a degree of faith. We spoke last week about how the world, which is a proxy for God's handiwork, is an opportunity for us to see God's majesty and God's awesomeness in his creations, and that will help us to uh, make firm 
in our heart to buttress our own faith based upon our analysis of God's world. That's one general realm of acquirership of your own faith. Additionally, looking at Jewish history, uh, when someone looks at Jewish history and sees how unique it is and sees how unlikely it is that our story should ever be told historically, how it's an anomaly of history, a nation scattered, hated, kicked out from every land that it spends a couple of hundred years in, goes back to Israel, reestablishes, gets to kicked out again, always being hated and tortured and uh, marginalized in so many different ways, yet is at the forefront and at the vanguard and at the cutting edge of all of the world's great achievement. Like, that's an amazing thing. If someone looks at it, and especially in light of the fact that the Torah predicts these things, that will uh, provide uh, substance to someone making their belief more strong. Additionally, there's a whole other realm that I want to talk about. Two more realms I want to talk to today, and then I want to kind of begin the next phase of our discussion, and that is someone's self, just your own life. It's, you don't have to have necessarily external stimuli to achieve a muna. You could have an internal metamorphosis of faith, an internal epiphany of faith, just you and your creator. And this is, I think, hard in our world because we're never with ourselves. I think the person that we know the least is our own selves because we're always thinking outwardly and we're terrified of introspection. We don't want to ruminate about ourselves because that's just so scary for us. We don't want to be in a a room. Like, don't lock me in a room with myself. Like, that's terrifying for us. But it's also very potent. And that's why the great Muslim masters and the great teachers of yore would encourage someone to spend time with yourself. Because spending time with yourself and thinking and contemplating is very potent. Now, there's another way someone's own individual experiences can integrate and can change the way they relate to the world and it can deepen their connection with the Almighty. This is a little bit counterintuitive. We are under the impression that, and this is a result of our Yitzhah but we're under the impression that there are things that we need to accomplish. We have to make a lot of money, become really rich, we have to have our sports teams, like we're hoping for our sports teams to finally win. You know, we're trying to chase after relationships. We're, we're hoping to, to, uh, to, to build something great or to do something great or to accomplish something. And we're always chasing these things like a, like a dog that has a bone just hanging in front of them and it's inaccessible to them. And sometimes someone will actually achieve everything that they've striven or strove so long to achieve and they'll get there, they'll feel emptiness. Because man needs meaning. And sometimes that meaning is artificial. It's like you have an artificial goal. You're playing Candy Crush. Like your goal is to get to the next level, to, the, to get to level 150. And then you get there. And the, uh, what was that all worth? All those hours that I played, what a waste of time. There's an emptiness. When someone actually achieves what they had set out to make their life meaning goal, you get there, and now what? I have a friend who was a big uh, University of uh, Florida Gators fan, a college that is known for its obsession with sports. And there was this one year that the football team and the basketball team won the national title. And he reflected upon that by saying, 
this is everything I've ever hoped for and I wanted, and now what? And now what? And in life, we, we always wonder, like, what is the meaning? We work so hard. We become really rich and really, and what's going to happen? We're going to die. They're going to place our body in a box, put it in the ground, and within a few months, all the worms and maggots are going to be biting at our flesh. What's it all about? And the absolute truth that someone will encounter is that unless you believe in God, unless you have a picture in your mind of another existence, of the realm of the soul, of the spiritual world, no matter how high it is that mountain that is your meaningful objective of life, remember how high it is? Eventually, it hits a brick wall. All of life, everyone you know, all this politics and sports and the news and all that, it's just a race off the cliff because everyone's going to die and what do they have left for you? You're a billionaire, mazel tov. You'll be dead. And you know what? The worms don't discriminate between your flesh and the pauper next door's flesh. It's all the same. It's all a race to zero. That, that's what life is if you don't have faith. And we are designed to reject that. We're designed that there has to be something. There, there is a soul within us. It's very powerful. We don't feel it, connect to it on a sensory level, but it's there. And when we think about that, that's absolutely devastating. And there's this hole, this void that we encounter in our world when we ruminate about such matters. And that's a very powerful thing. That, that can open up someone's relationship with the Almighty. But remember, that process, all these processes that we're talking about have to be done by a person themselves. And that's the goal. It doesn't matter how you get there, you have to get there. And what it means is to acquire your faith on your own. We don't want to rely on what our parents told us, what if our parents were lying. We don't rely on what our school tells us, tells us because you know what? When you become an adult, you realize that adults don't have all the answers. You realize that, and then start, you start to question things. If you, don't, if you don't blaze your own path, if you don't acquire your own mahalach, understanding of, of faith, you're, you're very much doomed to failure in your, in your life of faith. My grandfather would suggest, he would suggest an option like this. I got another very good method for someone to have to make their faith their own. A lot of people, we like having options. We like, that's why the term agnostic is so popular. Because it gives people, you still, you don't lose your option, you still have optionality. You say, well, I'm not making a choice. But we have to make a choice. Because if you don't make that choice, that choice of what you're, what you're living for, what your meaning in life is, that's going to determine your behavior. So you have to make that choice. And a good way to choose is to do what's called the two-door test. Okay, you're hesitant to believe in God, right? You're maybe not convinced by the evidence. You have questions. You wonder, well, people die because of wars of religion, which is, of course, nonsensical because by that same argument, the people die in wars about territory. We shouldn't have territory. We should all be floating in the air in balloons. It's not a good argument. People say that, and people are convinced by that. Oh, what do you mean? I saw a really religious guy who was going to prison because he was dishonest in business. Again, these aren't substantial arguments, but these are arguments that gain steam. 
And people, therefore, are hesitant to say, well, I'm agnostic, I'm an atheist. Okay, but re recognize what you're signing up for. You have to recognize, just, just know what you are choosing. First of all, someone says they don't believe in God. What they're saying is that all of life, everything, nothing really matters. Ultimately, nothing matters. You know why? Because if there's no din v'cheshbon, if there's no accounting and reckoning, it's all just where we all die the same, the same death, we're all eaten by the same maggots, life should have no meaning. That's a good argument. People, pe people have made that argument. But I also think someone wants to suggest Oh, someone wants, doesn't want to accept the idea of God into their hearts, they have to realize what's on the side of the other door. They want to suggest that we're just a bunch of automatons that arrived here without any intelligent design. Do you know who believed that more than anyone else and took that idea to its nth conclusion? One of the most vile murderers that have ever graced the planet was obsessed with that idea. Of course, that's Hitler. Hitler was motivated by the idea is that we're nothing but random accidents and the idea of, uh, of natural selection that the more mighty consumes the, the, the more inferior species. He was dominated by that idea. And you know what? He's right. If you choose that door, that's where you should end. That's the logical conclusion that you should make if you make that choice. You should optimize your life here and if there are other people that are maybe threatening you, they're taking away your Lebenstraum, right? Okay, you should justifiably pursue the kind of ends that he did. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that all people that are atheists are like Hitler. But I'm saying is, is that if you actually take an idea to its logical steps, conclusions afterwards, you should realize that according to people who take that option, who go through that door, that result is actually logical. And I don't think people are willing to do that. I want to look at, there's another way we could just, this is kind of that that approach, that method, I don't know if it might backfire, because it's really pushing someone to the wall and forcing them to realize what their decisions are. It may it work, it may not work. Like we said, these are all, everyone should choose whichever path they want to get to their result. What I'm trying to say over here is that there's a buffet. Right. There's a smorgasbord. And everyone comes and picks what they want. The result that we're trying to achieve here is where someone's faith is acquired. It's not given to them by their parents, by their rabbi, by the schools, by their friends, by the society, by the civilization. It's, it's their own. And that is to dovetail with what Joshua's saying. That is what it means to know how to respond. Because if you just have something you believe because of doctrine, some dogma that was told to you, then you can't respond to any arguments. Because it's not based upon any Certain, any cognitive process. There's four different realms to use. There's um, looking at the world and examining it. Let's say, I, I, I spoke about this last time. In our world today, we now know that the best estimate of how many different species there are are more than a trillion, a million million, which is an astonishing amount, unfathomable amount of different species. If you don't believe in God, you have to tell me how did all those species come into existence? A single species, I cannot even fathom how it will come in without an intelligent cre creation, no. creator. No. How do you have a trillion? Even if there was five species, I'd have a hard time believing. But tell me, step by step, how does this happen? Where do you have matter from? Even if I give you matter, where are you getting the building blocks for life? Where are you getting DNA from? Where are these things coming from? Tell me how it works. Just show me the process. Even evolution starts off 
with an amoeba. Well, we'll start with just an amoeba. An amoeba is something more complex than anything all of collected human society has ever built together. Even if you add more time, it doesn't help. The time problem doesn't solve the, the core problem. So uh, what I'm saying is, is that there's a variety of ways. You can use that approach. Some people it works for them, some people it doesn't work for them. You look at the Torah, you look at history, you look at man, you look at all these things and you develop a some sort of framework that works for you. So everyone has their own, their own things that motivate them. But the mitzvah of I am the Lord, demands of us for each one of us to develop our own approach and our own damage to don't respond to the heretic, build your own model, your own construct that works for you. Now, I want to I kind of impress upon the discussion here why this is so critical and why all these other levels, even uh, we, we're suggesting that emotional faith is not enough and cultural faith is not enough. We have to have cognitive faith. We have to have acquired faith. But even that, is this in your head? You have to take that and migrate it south. You have to actually believe in a way that it actually penetrates every part of your life, your behavior, your outlook in the world. And the question is, why is that so necessary? Why does the moon have to be so fundamental and basic that it actually transforms the very... Uh, physiology of your person, that you change from being a body to a soul. There's a Gemara in the book of Sanhedrin on page 63b. And the Gemara there is talking about idolatry. And we know in ancient times, the Jewish people, unfortunately, had many, many times, many instances where the Jews committed idolatry. And the Gemara is disturbed by that. Like, why would some, why would groups of Jews go and bow down to statues? It seems like it's a very very bizarre idea. Why would they do that? It doesn't make any sense. So the Gemara asks that question. And the Gemara says something very striking. The Gemara says that the Jewish people always knew there was no substance in the idols. They knew it had it had no substance. So why did they worship it? They only worshipped it in order to permit for themselves, matters of illicit activity publicly. That's what the Gemara says. This is a remarkable idea. In 1957, a book by the name of Cognitive Dissonance was released. And the idea of Cognitive Dissonance is that we struggle when there's disharmony between our beliefs and our behavior. If, for example, if I want to be a smoker, that's, that's my behavior. I'm, I'm an addict. But how could I smoke if I know I'm actually giving myself cancer and carcinogens? How, how could I do that? I'm, I know it's dangerous, so why would I do it? So that's why you see a trend where smokers will say, well, what do you mean? My great-grandfather, he lived to 107, and he smoked three patches of unfiltered cigarettes a day, and he only died when, they, when he quit. And it's not reliable, right? They do all those mental chicanery in order to harmonize their belief, and their behavior. That's what the theory of cognitive dissonance, uh, written in 1957, posits. The Gemara is essentially saying the same thing 2,000 years prior. What it's saying is, what was the underlying motivation for the people's idolatry? It was not the idolatry itself. It wasn't that they were theologically challenged and they wanted a, they wanted to they wanted to believe in these foreign gods? Of course not. They knew it had no substance. So why did they do it? What they really wanted 
was illicit activity to be able to do that brazenly. And it's incompatible. You can't behave in a way that's not commensurate with Torah if you believe in Torah. So what's the solution? Solution is, do idolatry. You do idolatry, you repudiate Torah, you repudiate Torah, you can behave however you wish. What this means is, is that our behavior is much more fixed than our intellect and our beliefs. And therefore, when there is an incompatibility between the two, which one are we going to change? The one that gives way easier, i.e. our beliefs. So if I want to behave one way, but I believe a different way, the law is, is that I feel very uncomfortable when there's dissonance, when there's disunity amongst those two, I'll have to change one. Something has to give. So what am I going to change? Well, it's much harder to change your behavior. So I'll just change what I believe. And thus, the people are doing idolatry, and in their heads, they think, well, idolatry has some substance. But it doesn't really have substance. If you were to ask them, why are you doing idolatry? They would say, well, I'm doing it because I believe it. But the truth is they don't believe it. The truth is that is just an artificial belief based upon their need to have the behavioral result that they actually wanted. How would someone remedy, let's go back to antiquity, how would someone remedy the problem? You have people that are doing idolatry. How, would you, how do you remedy the problem? So you, could, so you could go and you, you could go and lecture about theology and eschatology and about philosophy, and that won't that won't impact them at all. They're not willing to listen because the problem is not in their heads. In their heads, they're willing to believe what you're saying. It's more logical. It's like the case people people want to look at evolution. They say, "Oh, evolution, oh, it makes so much sense." But we all know that it's astonishingly improbable, infinitesimally unlikely. So why do they believe that? The answer is, is that's not really what's motivating them. It's not, it's not the cognitive idea, it's the behavior. And they know there's an incompatibility with their professed behavior and the behavior aligned with the belief that's more, con- that's more likely. But which one are you going to change? Whenever there's an incompatibility, you'll change your belief because that's more fickle, more flexible than your behavior. Now you're not even aware what's remarkable about this. People are not even aware of their own biases. If you ask the people why they did idolatry, they would not know that what's really operating beneath the surface is their desire for illicit activity. They don't even, they're not even aware of that. It's an unconscious bias. And just like the smoker, the smoker really believes, they really believe that the smoking is safe. But the truth is, the way to change that, to change the belief, is not to change the belief itself, it's to change the underlying underscoring, underpinning reason why this belief got corrupted, and that's the behavior. And that's why the Torah tells us, your faith, you have faith, faith in your head, great. But is it real faith? Well, what happens when what is in your head comes into conflict with what you believe? Well, let me ask you a question. Any sin, someone does a sin against what the Torah says, how is that compatible with what they believe in their head? They believe that God, they believe Torah, they believe it. So how are they behaving like that? The answer is, is that they don't actually believe it to such a degree that it can stand up in the face of their desired behavior to the contrary. And therefore, their belief is not really complete. Every sin, in effect, is a manifestation of cognitive dissonance that we all have. We believe in God. We're not willing to question that. But, well, uh, 
all the mitzvos are they so mandatory? Is there maybe some flexibility? Wait, the Torah does not provide a lot of flexibility. The Torah is not not very tolerant of of uh, of deviation from the strict rules. We know that, but well, God will know. God will understand what that essentially means. Is God know that? Look at the Torah. Look at the evidence. There's it's clear that that. The Torah is, God is not very flexible on his principles. So how are we behaving like that? The answer is that our, our behavior, that's on a higher scale of the totem pole of what we're willing to change versus our beliefs. And that's our own little mini cognitive dissonance. And that's why there's an obsession in the Torah to not just have a moon in your head, believe in God intellectually, because you can believe it intellectually and still behave however you want and find a way to make it compatible. Right. You have to actually have the moon in your body, in your behavior. That's the way to not sin. That, that's how you don't sin. Because that's the underlying reason why you would sin. That is, is, is more primary to affecting your behavior than what you believe in your head. You can believe a thousand things in your head and behave entirely however you want. Our sages tell us that Esau, Esau, the brother of Jacob, his head was buried in the cave of the forefathers, in Maras Machbela. The, the Midrash tells us is that Esav was stopping them from burying Yaakov. Chushim ben Don, Chushim, the deaf son of, of Don, he came, he's like, what's going on? He's like, this guy's stopping my, my grandfather from being buried? What? We have to go get some sort of document from Egypt? Boom, he decapitated him. And Esav's head rolls in into the into the cave of the forefathers, and is still there. Oh, so what does this mean? What this means is, so what the commentaries say, is that Esau, if you were to isolate Esau's head, he was just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was the same thing, intellectually, in his head. What Esau did not do is take the moon of his head and find ways to make it migrate down south to the rest of his body. Therefore, his head indeed was worthy of being buried alongside Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but his body wasn't. And that's the innovation of Judaism. It's to make emuna, to make it penetrate down into our body so that we'll actually behave in a way that is commensurate with what we quote-unquote believe intellectually. Esau believed in God intellectually, but how did he behave? Like a terrorist, like an animal, yeah. How's that possible? It's possible. The human psyche is capable of harmonizing our behavior that's not at all commensurate with what we actually believe. They knew that there was no there was no substance to the idolatry. They knew it. So how they behave is how that why they do it? Well that's just a way of creating harmony between the two. And that's why for us we have to realize that our amuna Indeed, it's not just some sort of, oh, let's try to make a moon to make it more exhaustive. No, the moon itself is lacking because it's subject to being upended by our behavior. They're in opposition. If our body, so to speak, our behavior is not aligned with our faith, our body will win. It will win. And that's why we have to find a way to migrate all the beliefs of our head into our body to take the lesson of tefillin and have the mitzvahs, so to speak, transform our body, that our body too has a muna, and that way we, we could purify and elevate the body, and that way we could have it all and be a total beacon of faith in our lives. Anyone who does any sin, any sin whatsoever, it's a manifestation of lack of complete faith.
You know why? If complete faith is their whole body, mind, and soul, and everything, and body, and, and heart, and emotion, if that was all, uh, if that was all expressing faith, they wouldn't sin at all. And I think it's interesting, just we'll finish with this. The, the verse tells us, the verse we read a few weeks ago, after the splitting of the sea, and there's also a theme that we see again and again, the Torah, the mitzvahs are compared to medicine. Medicine. Medicine works magically, right? The novice is not aware of how it works. You just take pills and pills work, right? Well, God is the ultimate physician, ultimate healer, and our illness, our body, so to speak, that rebels against God, how was that remedied through mitzvahs? The process of mitzvahs is to make our tzaddik v'monasayichin, to actually live with faith, to have faith not be something in the realm of the mind alone, but to have something that operates in the entirety of someone's life, and that's done through mitzvahs. How does it work? We don't understand the connection between shaking a lulav on circus and becoming men of complete faith. We don't understand how that works, but we're the patient. God's the physician. He gives us the prescription. We follow the prescription. We'll achieve the desired result. Mitzvahs give us the complete amuna, and that's uh, and the result will happen magically.